Before we get started, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. At Keeley Companies, they do things a bit differently. They proudly call themselves Keelians. They pride themselves on swag that will knock your socks off. They have a dedicated vice president of learning and education. They have their own philanthropic foundation. It's called Keeley Cares. They empower every Keelian to speak up if they feel unsafe. That the most competitive wellness challenges around, they are committed to being better leaders of diversity and inclusion. They are not afraid of dreaming big. And in the words of my friends, Rusty Keeley, they are just getting started. Check out more at KeeleyCompanies.com. Oh, and one more thing. Many of my past clients, my friends, and peers are sharing that the number one national best-selling book, it's called In Awe, is the exact message of hope and wonder and pursuit of happiness needed right now. So to celebrate In Awe's half birthday, we are offering incredible specials, including up to a 50% bulk order discount. It's for this month only. You can learn more about that at readinawe.com. I want you to learn more about rediscovering your childlike wonder and order your copy, or should I say your copies today at readinawe.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. I'm going to begin this episode by taking you back in time six full years. Here we go. Six years ago, I flew from St. Louis, Missouri into Minneapolis, Minnesota, and then eventually into Calgary, Canada for a speaking event. After getting off the plane and then waiting in this long customs line, eventually I handed a passport to a gentleman, answered a couple layup questions. He handed me back the passport and then he asked me one final question. St. Louis, huh? So I said, yes, sir. And he responded, well, brother, I'm really sorry about the fact that your city is on fire. Michael Brown had been shot just days earlier in Ferguson, Missouri, which is a community right outside of my backyard. Sadness over the loss of this man had turned to anger, which turned to the streets filling with protesters, which then turned to a few bad actors arriving, inciting violence, which eventually turned to more bloodshed, more violence, more hopelessness, more burned out structures, and more despair. The cycle repeats itself. In a reality we've seen not only in my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri, but in numerous American cities and in cities around the world. And then we hear from the people the cry, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace. We hear the cries for change, but where does all this go? When will there be peace? And are we coming closer together or are we breaking farther apart? And how do we individually, how do we personally take steps forward together? Well, my friends, today on the Live Inspired Podcast, we discuss every single topic that you are not supposed to discuss around the dinner table this Thanksgiving. We are going to talk about racism. We're going to be talking about Black Lives Matter, 
We're going to be talking about politics and religion and justice and your role. I want you to write that one down. Yes, your role in making your and our tomorrow far better than yesterday. To do so, I've invited in a guest who I think is uniquely positioned for this time and for this conversation. His name is Pastor James Ward. He is an author, he's an entrepreneur who speaks nationally and internationally on cultural and spiritual issues. He has been seen and heard on television and radio and podcasts around the world. And he emphasizes spiritual awakening and making change while also challenging listeners to intellectually hear God's word. He's the author of Zero Victim, Liberate Yourself from the Mentality of Defeat, He's the founder of a multicultural church called Inside Church. It's in Chicago, just north of there. Through that vocation, he became friends and became the pastor of Jacob Blake's mother and grandmother. And just for a little context, Jacob Blake is the man who was shot seven times in the back by police officers just this summer in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Pastor James Ward is a husband to Sharon. They've been married for more than 20 years. They have two wonderful children. Their names are Hannah and Jonathan. And Pastor Ward has joined us during this important time to have this valuable conversation with you today, my friends. So here's my encouragement. Step away from the voting poll booth just for a moment. Drop the D or the R that you walked onto this podcast with. Drop the thoughts that you had previously about what you already know to be true. Come in with your eyes opened, your hearts opened, your mind open to a life-giving, life-affirming conversation about the truth, that the foundation is firm, the headwind is real, but the best days are yet to come. So here we go with my friend and now yours. His name is James Ward. James, my brother, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hey, John. Hey, man, it's really good to be with you. And I want to let you know how grateful I am, how humbled I am at the opportunity. I never take it for granted. And I uh, so greatly appreciate the amazing work that you're doing, the amazing, amazing audience, the amazing community that you've built over time. I just want to celebrate and honor everything you're doing. Let you know, man, I'm really delighted to be with you. So thanks for having me. It really means a lot. It, it is an honor. And when I was first introduced to you, and we'll come back to this later on in the interview, it was on sure. CNN. The questioner was trying to paint you into one corner and you just refused right. to go. You just refused yeah. to divide. And this conversation around how do we divide and break into pieces, it's very common these days, but it's one that you're, you'd rather not have. So James, for those who have not read your work, they have not been to your church, they have not heard your interviews, they've never heard your life, they don't know what you stand for. If you met one of us at an airport as you're getting ready to travel to one of your events and they asked you, I asked you, James, what, what do you do, man? What, what, what do you sure. do for a living? How do you respond to that question? Sure. No, thanks. Well, I mean, I would certainly respond first and foremost, John. I, I tell everyone, man, that I'm, I am a Christian. My, my Christianity, my faith comes before my ethnicity. I think that in a time now when um, you know, our culture seems to categorize and divide people, um, based upon skin color immediately and almost permanently, something that completely goes against. Sometimes I reference Dr. King's dream in terms of him dreaming of a nation where people, of course, would be judged by the content of their character and not the, the color of their skin. You know, it's like we haven't gotten the message yet. That's a reality that we deal with. And I often tell folks that I'm a Christian. My Christianity comes before my ethnicity. 
that my life is defined by who I am in Christ and what God says about me. I have to go back to the, the manufacturer, the one who created me in his own image and his own likeness and um, to not fall into, again, these categorizations, the category, categorizations that uh, sociopolitical uh, pundits and uh, the race baiters want to put us in, man. Everything for me begins with my identity in Christ in terms of who God created me to be. And I've, I've discovered, um, John, that that is really, really, I think, the most powerful and, and the fundamental principle that every individual has to start with is I think that the degree to which we live victimized and we live a life that is defined by society, we live a life from the outside in instead of living life from the inside out. I think the degree to which we, we operate in identity crisis and we don't understand who God uniquely and originally intended for us to be, understanding the, the innate value that God sees in us, I believe that that identity crisis, it, it shifts us over into the area to determine the degree to which we will be victimized by life in terms of us uh, having our identity and values imported to us instead of us living life from the inside out. And so everything starts there with me. Um, I can tell you how I got to this place of what I call zero victim mentality, zero victim living. And um, you know, just to kind of wrap up this introduction, man, I sincerely believe and know from, from God's word that John, he created us to be uh, thermostats and not thermometers that many times we live life as a thermometer and we just kind of reflect everything that's happening around us. Of course, a thermometer is only capable of reflecting whatever temperature is in the room, but a thermostat dictates the temperature. It determines if it's hot or cold. And when you rediscover this, this your own identity in God and who, and who God created you to be and really get past this idea of victim mentality, man, I think that, that those are the fundamental ingredients that shifts every one of us into being a world changer that we're capable of impacting the world. Mm -hmm. And I want to help communicate that message and unpack that for folks that I believe every every single individual has the potential to be a world changer and to um to live for the glory of God. Brother, you you live just a little north of me right now. You run a church and lead a church a little north of me right now, just north of Chicago, Illinois. But that's mm -hmm. not where this began for you. And so I'm going to have you jump on Highway 55, go past the arch, keep on going south. Go yeah. to, I think, the greatest barbecue city in the country. It's called Tuscaloosa, <laughs> Alabama. Man, oh, yeah. I would drive nine hours to get some barbecue from there right now. There's a place there called Dreamland. Oh, my gosh. Dreamland. That's right. Holy cow. I, I, I'll meet you there for lunch today. But before we get yeah. there, I'd like you to share what your upbringing was like in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Sure. Yep. So growing up in Tuscaloosa, um, in the, the tail end of segregation, they were still sorting out the uh, the school's not too far from Selma, Alabama. And so you know that the, the history of the racial tension that existed in uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, it's uh, it's something is just growing up um, without, not that my parents had a conversation with me, no one had a direct conversation with me, but I grew up knew, knowing somehow that white people were the enemy. And that was, that's again, not because of a direct conversation that I ever had with a family member, but it's it was just a culture that you knew it was black versus white. White people were the enemy. White people uh, were responsible for all of the hardships that black people are, are dealing with. And black people are supposed to be the Democrats. White people are supposed to be Republicans and you can't get along. I mean, it's amazing how, how poisoned I can say our minds and our hearts become, how infected our hearts become from the culture without even direct conversations. I think it's something that we literally find ourselves 
being defined by these things and no child is born with it, but it's something that we're literally infected by the culture. Going into third grade, um, I'd grown up and gone to an elementary school that as far as I can remember, there were no, no white kids. It was just, you know, a few white teachers, no white kids. And then we get this, this notice um, going into third grade that they're integrating the school system that we're going to have to now start taking a bus across town to a new school, to a different school. When my old school was just, uh, you know, a few minutes down the, down the street from me. And so that was, that was a big day for me in third grade, you know, getting on the school bus for the first time. Uh, the city of Tuscaloosa is divided um, geographically by the, the Black Warrior River. Yeah. And at that time, it was this idea that the white people lived on the north side of town, the black people lived on the south side of town. And you just, you just didn't cross the, the river too much. That's just not what you did. And so here I am, I am on this bus, taking this bus across the river to the white side of town. And so I'm sitting there kind of like, you know, how is this going to play out? You know, this is a big deal. And honestly, John, as we, as we crossed the river, I actually began to notice that the environment and the scenery changed. And we actually began to drive through some neighborhoods to get to the school. And I saw that the lawns were well manicured. I saw that the homes were, were uh, you know, newer designs and there were nicer cars in the driveway. The streets were paved more nicely than where we were on our side of town. And the first thing that went through my mind is, I want to live on this side of town. I deserve to live on this side of town. I didn't know this, this existed. And when I entered into school, um, it was a situation that it was really a pivotal moment for me. How, how was I going to respond and react to this new hostile environment that I was in? Yes. Now I'm in a classroom with a majority white kids and it's just a few of us uh, who are black kids. And here's the thing that really, really shifted my life. And I would, I would really encourage your viewers and listeners, um, especially in the lives of children, to not discount and underestimate what God can do in the lives of children and how those formative years can really shape the remainder of their lives. And for us to continue to think about our children that even as, we, as we're uh, moving forward with the things that are happening in society. So in third grade, I go into this new school and I uh, happen to have a black teacher who was a friend of my, my grandmother's and um, sitting in class, uh, thinking that things are going to be hostile, thinking I'm going to have to fight and kind of defend myself because I'm a black kid with white kids. But John, the thing that happened was, was, was that was so amazing is um, as we would get grades throughout the week, our teacher would put our name on the board. Whoever got the best grade in the class, you would put their name on the board and put a star next to their name. And I, I began to notice that my name was on the board quite a bit, not for the wrong reasons, but for all the right reasons. And, and I began to realize, John, that my performance had absolutely nothing to do with the white kids around me. I began to realize that they were not against me. They weren't hindering me. They weren't stopping me from doing well. And John, something clicked in my life and shifted in my life that I began to realize and embrace what I didn't know then, but what I now call a zero victim mentality that I began to understand that God had wired me to do certain things and the people around me weren't against me. The environment was not against me that I could succeed in that, envi in that environment. And you know what happened? My relationships began to change. The quality of my schooling changed when something shifted in my mind. Nothing changed around me, something changed within me. And when something changed within me, that's what changed what, around, what, changed what happens around me. And from third grade, John, that changed the trajectory of my life. I began to live that way um, in terms of not seeing ourselves as victims. I think that determines really um, the, the quality of our life, the experiences in our life are determined. Proverbs 4.23, there's a, a Bible verse in Proverbs that says, guard your heart for out of it springs the issues of life. 
And um, I think we fail to realize that how, how our life is ultimately shaped, the destiny of our life is shaped so much more by the content of our heart and our mindset um, than it is the external circumstances that we're, that we're dealing with on, on a day-to-day basis. And so I'm kind of on a mission to kind of help folks understand the power of insight, inside out living, which is something that God intended for us, God desires for us, and that mindset is all throughout the scriptures as well. So James, it's a beautiful backstory, man. Yeah. And for yeah. the viewers, they see a handsome guy in front of them, well-dressed, oh, wow. well-kept. Okay. For the listeners, they hear an articulate guy who's clearly yeah. got a grasp not only not only of scripture, but yeah. an intellectual, man. Like you, you, you mm. get it. And I, I just want to make sure that people recognize when you're talking about a zero victim mindset, you're not saying that you haven't been victimized, that you haven't been abused, that right. you haven't dealt with unfair issues throughout right. your entire life but you've chosen and it's a difficult choice, but it's a choice you began making yeah. in third grade to rise above. So to, to set the stage for that, rather than telling us a story of how the teacher wrote your name on the wall as someone to be celebrated, w- would you also contrast that with a story of when you could have chosen to be victimized? Because it, it sure. probably was not easy as you crossed the bridge, as you moved your way into nicer neighborhoods, better kept yards, nicer cars, everything else. Yeah. And the people that lived there who probably weren't thrilled yeah. every day to see you showing up there. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's absolutely true what you're saying, that, that we're not talking about being insulated or living in a bubble or um, being dismissive of anything. And I like to make that very clear that when we're talking about a zero victim mindset, we're not being dismissive of injustice that exists all throughout our society. We can, we can talk about that all day in terms of the, the root of this injustice. And maybe we'll have some chance to discuss that here in a few moments. And so we're not being dismissive or ignorant of anything, um, but we are talking about how do you respond to it? We're talking about acting instead of reacting to the circumstances that, that have happened. And I have had numerous com- com incidents where I could have responded you know, a, a way that was um, inappropriate out of victim mentality that could have put me in danger and put other people in danger. I mean, let me give you give an example. I've been stopped multiple times by white police officers. Okay, you got this narrative in America right now that that um, you know white police officers uh, having an encounter with a, with a black man like there's always going to be trouble. There's always going to be a problem. And um, again, we can talk. We have we have people who are who are damaged and broken in every walk of life. You got people who are. Um, who are who are unjust and people who uh, do things to hurt other people, people who have uh, have a wrong assessment about the value of other people. People are misguided in every area. I like to say that you got bad police officers, just like you got bad pastors, you got bad priests and bad preachers, you got bad politicians. And so, uh, immorality does not discriminate because of our socioeconomic status or our office or our education or position in life. It's a heart matter. We can come back to that. But I've had situations where I've been uh, multiple in- encounters with white police officers. But I can just like, share from my experience. And again, everyone is not everyone is not equal. But I can share from my experience on multiple occasions how my zero victim thinking, the tenor, the tone of what I communicate, my interaction with with those white police officers, how it defined my experience with those police officers instead of me allowing them to define. The, the, the experience on their terms, even though they're the one with the badge and the gun and the position of authority. I got stopped and uh, felt that the officer stopped me for reasons that were really not valid. But right off the bat, you know, looking him directly in his eyes and I addressed him as an equal. I, with respect, but I addressed him as an equal. And, and it's, it's obvious to him that there's nothing lacking in me. There's nothing hindered. I'm not afraid of him. There's, 
And I think it, I've seen it disarm the interaction when he understands that I'm, I'm comfortable in who I am and I'm not nervous. And so I have direct conversation. I, I try to speak with eloquence. I try to speak with intentionality. I'm compliant. Um, I'm not dismissive. If there's an infraction, I'm not, you know, accusatory in terms of him being after me. I don't enter into the conversation with that, with that attitude, but I enter from a neutral space, from a neutral space. And through dialogue, I find that the more we come, we have conversation, it disarms any hostilities. And there's one situation that the police officer ended by saying, you know what, there's something different about you. I, I've been in another situation, clear racism. Um, I'm driving back to my home. We live in a nice, nice area here in North of Chicago, Northwest suburbs. And uh, they do this marathon every year and um, they block off the streets and only the residents can come back to this area because the streets are blocked off. And so I go through these checkpoints to get home, coming from the health club. First police officer is a, a police officer of Asian descent. Hello, uh, how are you? Doing great. Do you live in the neighborhood? Yes, I do. Um, fine, you know, let's look out for the, for, the, for the runners and, you know, have a nice day. And so I get through the next police officer that I come through the checkpoint is a black police officer. Hey, sir, how are you? Do you live in the neighborhood? Yes, I live in the neighborhood. Wonderful. Look out for the residents, you know, drive on the left side of the road, have a nice day. I get to the third checkpoint as a white police officer. Now I've already gone through two checkpoints now. So yes. it's pretty clear that I belong in the neighborhood. I get to the third, you know, checkpoint as a white police officer. And he talks to me with the harshest tone. Do you live here? Yes, I live here. Let me see your driver's license. He makes me take out my driver's license. I show him my driver's license. Then he wants to know, describe to me where your neighborhood is. How, how far down? How many streets down? And he interrogated me as though I did not belong after having gone through two checkpoints. And by this time, I'm kind of saying, okay, this is pretty disrespectful now. But at that moment, you know, continuing to be compliant because I'm not a victim, John, I chose to act and not react to disarm that situation, which, is, which was really me taking control over the situation. Many times we get this twisted and we think by lashing out that we're taking control of the situation. When you lack out with victim thinking, you lose control of the situation. But when you maintain a zero victim mindset, you maintain control of the situation. He, of course, let me, let me go on and um, I got home. Clear, clear incident of profiling and racism and what, what you want to call it. And let me sum this point up by saying this. Jesus makes this statement in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's, a, it's a, staple, a statement that baffled me my entire life. And Jesus says that if, if, you, if someone, you know, smites you on this cheek, he says, turn to the other cheek. But then he, he, he makes this statement, says, if a Roman soldier makes you carry his bag for one mile, then Jesus says, you offer to carry his bag for two miles. I used to think, man, is, is Jesus endorsing victim thinking? Is he endorsing oppression? Is he endorsing uh, people being uh, experiencing injustice? And absolutely not. What I think Jesus was communicating to us, which again, he is the greatest champion of zero victim mindset. We can talk about that from the scriptures. But when Jesus makes the statement, if you're commanded to go one mile, you volunteer to go two miles. I believe what Jesus was saying, that the first mile you were victimized, Mm. The moment you willfully and voluntarily take a step, the first step you take to volunteer to serve by carrying that bag, the second mile, I believe Jesus was saying at that moment, you take control. At that moment, you become the greater of the two individuals because you not only had the grace and the strength to do what you were compelled to do, but out of a heart of love and a heart of compassion and a heart of service, you can now demonstrate a strength that is supernatural to go two miles instead of one mile. 
That is the power of zero victim thinking. And I believe that we can communicate and get this message across America. John, I believe it is, it is, it is capable of changing the narrative, changing the social unrest, the racial unrest we see right now. I believe it's capable of changing our nation right now. And we want to, we want to get that message out as best we can. So I'm going to ask you an either or question, but the answer is probably a yes and. Does it begin in an individual heart? Is it just you being a zero victim when the third police officer accosts you in your own neighborhood? Is that where this change takes place? Or is it the systemic level where it's, uh, it, it, it rains down upon you from above because you get the right officials, the right process, the right people in place to make your life easier yeah. and to make less injustices a part of the system? Where, where, do, you see, where do you see the next yeah. step being? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It is, it is both. And, but I think the priority is slightly different. I think that, that we tried, um, and I think it's, 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 we mistakenly tried well-intentioned, but we mistakenly tried to fix systemic ills without first addressing the hearts of people. I think that we have to shift the priority that it is both. And, but the first thing we do, I think we have to start with the lion's share of our energy and effort of, of dealing with the human heart for this reason. People define systems and institutions. And when people fail to define systems and institutions, people who have not been defined are defined by those institutions that are flawed, if, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. So in other words, people, I, I use the analogy sometimes, John, and I say that the good man wrote the constitution. The constitution has never made a good man. And so systems come from people. People define systems and it starts with the human heart. But if we, if we fail to have righteous people who are, who are capable of defining those systems, those broken systems then begin to define people who have not been defined. And that takes me back to this identity crisis. And so if I'm uh, growing up in the United States of America, and let's just say, if I'm struggling with my identity, if I'm struggling with victim thinking, if I'm struggling with all of the hardships and the things that I've gone through in life, all of the uh, perceived or real injustices that I've experienced, if those things have, have taken root in my heart, mm -hmm. I'm going to be victimized by systems all day long because there's something lacking in my heart for me to, um, to kind of deal with that, to bring about the necessary equilibrium and then to affect change, going back to therm thermometers versus thermostats. Yes. And so people define systems. I think we have to start at the heart level. And in many situations, I believe that it's, it's um, um, really the easier way out and I'm not being dismissive of folks that are really fighting to bring change in areas where we really need change. But I just think it's the easier way out for our country to point a finger and say the system is racist, the system is bad, the system is unjust. The more difficult work, the dirtier work, so to speak, is for us to start digging into the hearts of people and start to understand why people define the system the way that they do. Why do we treat each other the way that we do? I'm, I'm going to read you a quote and then I'd like you to unpack it because the quote comes from you. So here we go, James Ward, mm -hmm. it says this. There are three types of law that govern a nation, spiritual law, moral law, and civil law. But we yeah. are only familiar with civil law. And we often are ignorant of the ramifications of violating spiritual and moral law, which civil law alone cannot remedy. Tell me what that means in, in layman's terms. Yeah. yeah, no, thanks, John. Yeah, this is, this, is the, this is the big deal, man. This is something that, that you know, the Lord has placed in my heart with the level of clarity that uh, we're, we're wanting to communicate it as much as we can, because I think it's the, it's the fundamental um, uh, ideology that will help shift things and even shift our approach 
to how we deal with things in America. Spiritual law has to do with laws that come from God. They're universal, unchangeable laws, things that God himself has put, put in place. Uh, we could use the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue, for example, thou shalt not kill. Spiritual laws have to do with laws that come from God about humanity for which God holds humanity accountable. But then moral law, John, has to do with my ability and your ability to govern ourselves mm. based upon spiritual law. And so we know the spiritual law, thou shalt not kill. That's a spiritual law. But then the moral law is when I say James Ward shall not kill. And I, I adopt that and I'm able to conduct myself with the right level of morality. Well, guess what? If I break spiritual law, if I break moral law concerning kill, kill, killing, we've instituted civil law to punish me for what? For breaking spiritual and moral law. And so civil law is the least form. It's the weakest form of the three kinds of law. I tell police officers all the time, you know, I have a good friend here, friend here who just retired. He's a police chief, police chief. And I had a chance to share this with President uh, Trump as well. I, I tell everybody that I can speak to and share this with Attorney General Bill Barr. You know what, that if, if we can do spiritual and moral law right, mm -hmm. it makes civil law a whole lot easier. You know, that you'll have to build less prisons and smaller prisons if we can build good people, if we can build better people. And it seems as though we've, we've thrown out and our nation is not even familiar really with civil, with spiritual and, and, and moral law, but our nation is only familiar with civil law, in our case, constitutional, constitutional law. And the problem is that you cannot legislate morality. You cannot make better people better or make people better or make people uh, decent, people of honesty and integrity with civil law. It's, it's incapable of doing that. And so I use this analogy to say that, John, if you give a righteous man the launch codes to our nuclear arsenal, you know what? Everybody in the world is going to be safe. There's nothing to worry about because even though that guy has the capacity to bring great destruction, he's a righteous, good guy. So you, you don't have to worry about anything. But if you give an unrighteous man a soup spoon or an ink pen, you have to fear for your life because his heart has malicious intent and there's nothing you can do to stop him from doing harm. And so it's, a, it's an issue of, of spirituality and morality that we've drifted away from. Uh, I can be the first person to say as a Christian pastor, we're not here to force everybody to be Christian. That would be unscriptural and unacceptable to begin. But every nation has to have some spiritual and moral um, piling some foundations and some pillars upon which that society is built. Psalms, Psalms 11 verse 3, it says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? John, I think the fundamental problem in America right now is that the, the foundations of spiritual and moral law have been damaged, have been broken, they're being destroyed. And that means that our entire society is at some point is going to implode. And that is my great concern for America. You know, empires have, have risen and fallen throughout history. America is not exempt. You know, all the great world superpowers of the history of antiquity, uh, many of them don't exist any, anymore because of moral decadence and because they imploded from within. My great concern right now is that America is, is in danger of imploding if we don't shore up and we don't reinstate these spiritual and these moral laws right now. As you know, James, organized religion is losing its membership across every religion around the world and certainly here in the United States. Yeah. And then many individuals are falling away even from personal spirituality. It used to be yeah. very common to say, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. And that was a hard thing for people yeah. to unpack and to share what that really meant for them. For our yeah. listeners and for their loved ones who might argue, you know what, I don't, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in a moral law. I certainly don't believe in a spiritual law, James. What, yeah. what would your argument back to them be? Sure. 
Yeah, you know, John, the most the thing that is most encouraging to me, uh, really more than anything else, and I've really seen this in the past three months. The things that is that is most encouraging to me is when I get messages by the hundred, hundreds from people who are saying, uh, "James, I am I am irreligious. I'm not a church goer." Some people said, "I am agnostic. I'm atheist. I'm atheist," which I totally respect. And those folks have sent me messages and saying, "You know what? I'm not a religious person, but what you say." makes sense. I understand what you're saying and I support what you're saying because it makes sense to me even though I am not a religious or a deeply religious person. That encourages me because I believe that 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 Christianity that the the, the word of God it should make sense when it's presented the right way. I think it's something that God intended to be a blessing to people and not to to hurt or to damage people. And I and I can say that that you know it, it saddens me. I think that that speaking on behalf of those who are Christian leaders, I think we've had a, a Christian leadership crisis in 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 America um, over the years. And I think in some ways that we we failed. And I ask that God would forgive those of us who have been in this space as Christian leaders who have misrepresented the gospel. Every time I hear about a you know a pastor or a priest or someone falling into immorality and doing something to hurt and damages people. You know what? It it damages all of us. It hurts us all because the credibility of the scriptures and the credibility of God's word, which is described as the gospel, which is good news, that people interpret the good news as being bad news because you have people with moral failures who've been called to handle the gospel, and that in and of itself is a is a picture of God's mercy and grace. And He would even use broken vessels to carry His message. And so I would just encourage uh, folks to answer your question to. Uh, to maybe be open to the message itself, be open to God who is perfect, who is even unlike the people that, like me, who have to represent him with our flaws and our issues, but God himself is perfect, his message and his word is perfect, and so I would just encourage folks to listen to the message, listen to the gospel itself, and, and to know that sometimes we do have to uh, to pardon or to have mercy on the imperfect vessels that are called to deliver that message, but the message itself is good, and with all of my heart, I believe that there is no greater uh, source of moral authority. There's no, there's, a, there's no greater source of, um, of, of blessing, um, principles that bring blessing on people than the scriptures, than the word of God. I just don't think there's a, there's a better resource that is available to us than God's word to bring the blessing of God to our nation. And everybody wants that, that whether we're religious or not religious, everybody wants to be blessed. Everybody wants to live well. And I think that there's 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 much room um, as we embrace the truth of God's word with humility, with this zero victim mindset. If we're willing to come together, man, I I am absolutely hopeful and um and and knowing that we can we can we can see significant advancement and improvement in our society without destroying each other. We can do it, man. I I know that we can. And as long as God gives me breath, man, it's an honor to partner with folks like you to keep on uh, marshaling this message and trying to. Uh, bring people to the place that they're being inspired and they're moving forward in the best that God has for them. Man, you should become a pastor. I, I think you could do this as, like, <laughs> as a day job sometime, but we'll come back to that maybe at the very end. So right. <laughs> you, you quoted Martin Luther King Jr. at the beginning of our conversation. And in this yeah. podcast studio where I record these, you know, be, behind me, what you're looking at right now, that's a wall of my family. Yeah. So my four kids, my wow. wife, my parents, my yeah. grandparents, siblings, yeah. behind the camera, all of our podcast guests and James Ward will go up there shortly, but all these amazing wow. individuals that I've had the honor of becoming friends with. And then over to your right, James, they're historical figures. Okay. That I want to be more like, 
like Mother Teresa and Oscar Romero. And, and then there's a picture of a, a young African-American man holding his daughter. And it's a picture of Martin Luther King Jr. And he's got his right hand on her. He's looking into her eyes. She's looking up at her daddy. And you quoted when you began with me, and I've heard you quote it several times in other podcasts and interviews, the I have a dream speech. And specifically from that, you draw out this idea of focusing on character rather than skin color, rather than skin pigmentation. Yeah. I feel like you keep harping on that. Why, why does that matter to you? Yeah, yeah. It, it matters to me for a few reasons, um, John, again, going back to the idea that, you know, again, for those of us that, that honor scripture, um, Genesis chapter one, verse 26 says that, and God created people in his image and in his likeness, that every individual, whether we believe in God or whether we don't believe in God, we've still been created in God's own image and in his own likeness. And then it later says that God breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living being. Man, I honor the life of God, the spirit of God that animates us, um, the, the, the very, the very, what the Bible calls the Zoe, the very life of God that is in, in all of us. Man, I, I honor that. And when you talk about, you know, living, when I, I mentioned living life from the inside out versus the outside in, you're talking about character. You know, the person of the Holy Spirit is very simple for me in biblical terms. The Holy Spirit is the character of God. And when you receive the Holy Spirit and you're open to his voice, he literally, his goal is to make you become more and more like Christ, to be more and more like God, that the DNA of God is actually on the inside of you. They made, a, they made a question, they questioned Jesus once in Luke chapter 17. It says, Jesus, when is the kingdom, when is your kingdom going to arrive? And Jesus makes this statement. He says that the kingdom does not come by observation. He says the kingdom is within you. So he's talking about inside out living. And so character is a big, big deal for me, man. That is the, that is the number one thing that I'm after in my own life. And I'm after uh, to develop and help encourage in the lives of, of other people. And so when, when uh, Dr. King, uh, who was a who was a preacher just like myself, a pastor just like myself, and even hearing the story of how his father, I believe his father was the one that changed his name because of his father's respect for the German reformer, Martin Luther. And so you're talking about a family that honored the word of God, honored the things of God, and that shape, that became the infrastructure behind Dr. King's mission and his vision, his dream for America. It was, it was from the launching pad of faith and a connection to the word of God. And that's why I think that, that his life and his example is so uh, relevant right now. Um, certainly, the, 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 you're describing a picture of him with his daughter. I mean, man, the thing that I live for here is for my family, man. I, mean, I have a beautiful wife for 20 years. You know, I, I have a, a wonderful daughter who's just started her freshman year. Um, at college here and my son is in his junior year and I'm, I've been blessed with a family greater than I deserve and we're I mean I'm, I'm so thankful for what God has done in our family and I and I and I and I use this idea John that when we get into for example some of the the tensions in society and I get this question James do you think black lives matter like this is the big thing right now say it do you believe it and I tell folks you know what that's really, really simple for me. Of course, black lives matter because I'm black, my wife's black, <laughs> my, my daughter's black, my son is black. We all matter. But, I, but I, I quantify that by saying black lives matter to Jesus. Black lives matter to God. And again, when it comes back to this place of me talking about identity, I know that I matter. And there's no one in the world that can make me think that I don't matter because I've discovered my identity and I've developed this zero victim mindset. I believe Dr. King 
exemplify zero victim thinking. He exemplified a message of faith. He exemplified, exemplified a message of peace. He dipped, exemplified a message, of course, of reconciliation and a message of zero victim mind, mindset that I think he had many opportunities to respond to much of the injustice and the persecution even that he experienced, but he always seemed to respond with a zero victim mindset calling for peace when he experienced certain injustices that I, I've never experienced. He exemplified a, a mindset of faith and zero victim thinking. And I think that he is still an icon to this day for that very reason. I've, I've been saying this and I've, I've, I've become friends with his niece, Dr. Alveda King. And I had this conversation with her that with all due respect, I feel that Dr. King had a, had a dream, but I feel now that God has given us a vision for that dream, that it's not just a dream, but now you gotta have a vision for that dream. There has to be strategy, there has to be actionable items associated with that dream. I feel this is the time that we have to turn Dr. King's dream into a vision. I wanna join folks like you and others uh, to do our very best to make that dream a reality while there's, while there's still hope. Brown and Taylor. Michael Brown, yeah. George Floyd. Yeah. And then you add to that list the name Jacob Blake. You yeah. know the name Jacob Blake because you know the mother of Jacob Blake, you know the grandmother of Jacob Blake, and you've mm -hmm. known them for three decades. On August 23rd yeah. of this year, you know, 2020's been a hard year for all of us. Yeah. I don't care yeah. the color of your skin, candidly, or how you voted yeah. in November. It's been a very yeah. difficult year for all of us. On the 23rd yeah. of August, your phone rings. <sighs> And a, a family that you love is in all likelihood, they think at least going to lose a son. And even if he lives, what yeah. kind of life will you have going right. forward? Right. Man, when, when you get that phone call and you've been pulled over and you've dealt with the sadness and the injustice of it all, what are your first thoughts? Just as a, a black man and a father of a black boy, what, what is, what is yeah. your first thought? Yeah, my, my first thought, um, as always, John, is to, is to look to the scriptures. It's, it's where I say I'm, I'm Christian first. Um, the, the word of God, the mind of God, the wisdom of God for me becomes the lenses through which I have to see and filter everything in life to make sense of it all. And so when we got that phone call on you know, August 23rd from, from Julia that her son had been shot, the very first thing that my wife and I did instinctively uh, we were driving in our car when we got the got the phone call. The first thing we did instinctively was to pray. Um, that's where we start. I think America needs to be reminded right now, the place that we start has to be in the place of prayer. And so we started with prayer instinctively, immediately. And John, we literally prayed, Lord, we pray that Jacob will live and not die and that he'll declare your works. He'll declare the works of the Lord. We pray, Lord, let him live and not die. And you, you know that of, of these uh, kind of high profile, you know, similar incidents, yes. you know, Jacob is the only one that survived. And that's a, that's a miracle. You don't get shot seven times, you know, point blank range. And the chances of survival are, are not that great. We believe that was an answer to prayer and an answer to um, Julia's prayer, to his mom's prayer. And so we're thankful um, for that. And so I think the initial instinct is for us to go to God, to get the mind of God and then to gain his wisdom for how do we navigate through these very, very complex um, situations. No two are exactly the same. I think that in many situations, there's a number of variables yes. that lead up to these things that we don't have, the, the, don't have all the information to make accurate um, assessments and judgments. And the problem that we make is that in the day of the social media court system, uh, everybody is the judge and jury and weighs in and, and passes sentence. 
um, and you know, issues indictments and convictions based upon what they think and what they what they see when they're not directly connected to those situations and circumstances. And so I have a, a, a tremendous amount of respect uh, for Julia and Jacob. Um, I try to keep my respectful distance to allow them the privacy of the family to continue to work those things out. And, you know, whenever they call and, um, you know, say that they need something from us, we're there, we're there to serve and just to be a blessing to them however, however we can, you know. But I have to say, I couldn't be more proud of, um, of Julia um, just the way that she's handled this and the way that she's been an inspiration to, to our nation. Um, I've had opportunities to, uh, to talk and interact with, with Jacob. And there's, there's things that, questions that have to be answered that I can't answer. So brother, we, we have seven questions that we leverage to tie and tether all of our guests together. And we are one big, broad mm -hmm. question away from getting there together. Yeah. And this yeah. one, it's going to be kind of a three-parted question, but there's, there's just so much brokenness and yeah. divisiveness and sadness and injustice and racism and inequality and a whole lot of other issues broadly. And that's before we look in the mirror and we're dealing with yeah. our own stuff there, man. So uh, I'd yeah. like you to answer, how do we build capacity to change, to elevate, to grow? Uh, first individually, it's going to be a three-party question, yeah. but how do we first do that individually? Sure. How do we do that in the mirror? Yeah. Yeah. John, I think everything starts with, with humility. Um, I think that one of the the, the, the virtues that, it, that is lacking when I look at society now, which I believe is really most important, is the virtue of, of humility. And I think that begins with us, um, as you said, looking in the, in the mirror, um, but also coming back again to those three governing laws, um, spirituality and moral law, spiritual law and moral law is so important. Um, the, there's a passage in the scripture that says that when we look into God's word, it's like we're beholding as a mirror and we can actually see the glory of God. One of the, one of the adverse effects when you remove God and you remove faith from a society, people will inherently operate in pride because there's no righteous standard for them to, to measure themselves against. The apostle Paul prayed once in Philippians chapter three, he says, not having my own righteousness, but the righteousness which is from God through faith in Jesus Christ. And when you take God out of the picture, um, John, everybody in America, in America is defining their own righteousness. They're defining their own sense of what they think is right, what they feel is right, what they believe is right, that folks have gotten away from the absolute spiritual and moral truth of the Bible. And people are now speaking in terms of this is my truth and John has a truth <laughs> and my wife has a truth and everybody has their own truth. Well, you know what, when everybody has a truth, then those truths, truths are destined to collide and contradict each other. I think that is why right now the divisiveness in our nation is growing. The, div the division in terms of race and uh, racism, uh, racial relationships are growing because everybody has embraced their own truth. And we haven't seen these things, even though there's been injustice throughout history, we've always seen society at least uh, be able to kind of come back to this place that we embrace the spiritual and the moral, more absolute truth of the word of God in terms of God's righteousness, and we measure ourselves against his righteousness instead of measuring ourselves against ourselves. I don't even know if they still do it anymore, but, but, but for years and years, when you go into a court of law, again, another expression of how civil law works, when you go into a court of law, before you sit down on a witness stand, they would make you raise your right hand Put your left hand on what? Not an Oxford dictionary, not Merriam-Webster, not some philosophical book, not the latest, you know, self-help book or the latest 
um, you know, nonfiction, raise your right hand, put your hand on the Bible, because that is the highest standard by which we are all to measure ourselves. That even gives us the context for the truth that we need as you sit on this witness stand. That was just a picture and a visual in terms of the role of God's word in our society of being that righteous standard to which we uh, have some kind of benchmark to measure humanity. Well, you guess what? When you throw the Bible out of the court system, when you throw the Bible out of society, which I believe is by design from some folks that want to get rid of God's standard so that they can implement their standard, when you get rid of that, that moral standard of God's word, everything in society implodes. And um, you're going to have, and as the Bible says in Judges chapter six, everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. I think the very first step, step uh, John, is we've got to we've got to reinstitute the the spiritual and the moral law of God's word, and then it takes humility for us to engage and to measure ourselves against that instead of measuring ourselves against all the socio political ideologies that are happening today. I I tell our folks we're we're in the days of ideological warfare. It's a new kind of warfare today. It's ideological warfare. And that is why we're seeing so much division right now and, um, you know, relationships that that seem that they can't be reconciled. Pastor, I have a, a dear friend and on Monday this week joined him on his porch for a, a, just a visit, man, just catching up. So yeah. we're, we're outside, we're cold, the wind is blowing, we're talking about life. This guy is, mm-hmm. he, he's like, like everyone else struggling, struggling as a dad, yeah. struggling as a spouse, struggling professionally, struggling homeschooling and struggling with how to handle this issue taking place in society right now, this, this fractured society. And so the second question is, is it ties back to the first is how does he, and those of us who have families, how do we do a better job leading our family, whether that's a, a more of a nuclear family or our loved ones through this very de- divided time? How, how do we do a better job guiding those that we love through this, these difficult days? Yeah. 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 There's a, there's a few things that, that practically I sometimes, um, you know, tell folks that, uh, people ask me sometimes, you know, James, how do you really start with this zero victim mindset? What are some practical things that I can do? And I often share uh, just a few things, uh, John, that can help that can help folks. And I'll just I'll just give five keys that I think there are that are at least some some practical takeaways that your viewers can can implement in their own lives. I number I number one challenge folks to uh, first to know your environment. That if you want to lead through these turbulent times. If you want to lead through um, troublesome, you know, situations that you're facing off with, number one, I tell folks to know your environment, um, to to really take some time to assess the situation around you. Um, I deal with folks coaching in a corporate setting who are having challenges that, you know what, you need to assess your environment. You need to assess the employees. You need to assess the culture of your organization and become familiar with where you are. If you're camping, if you're hiking, you want to know your environment. You need to know what are the the threats, what are the pitfalls that are around you? And so number one, assess the environment. That can be in a family situation, in a corporate situation, in a social situation, it doesn't matter. Learn your environment and figure out the space that you're in. Once you know your environment, number two, I tell folks, know yourself. That brings you back to that identity piece to go ahead and to secure the things that need to be secured in you concerning your own identity. I find that that victim thinking and and sometimes more more spirit on the spiritual side, what we call spiritual woundedness um, in a social human services area, we sometimes call it moral injury. I find out that people who are are damaged with these these moral injuries, the spiritual woundedness or this victimization, there are liabilities within you. Sometimes the threat is not around you, the threat is in you. And so first know your environment, 
Number two, you have to know yourself. Number three, I like to tell folks, get, get some help, get some coaching, you know what I mean? Get connected with folks like you. Listen to your podcast on how to live inspired. Read my Zero Victim book because it'll give you some of the tools and the resources you need to educate and develop yourself to help strengthen you, to give you the arsenal that you need to face off with some of these hostile things that you're, that you're dealing with. I, I read an interesting, interesting statistic not too long ago, John, it says that every single calendar year, 25% um, of what an engineer knows becomes obsolete simply because things are changing so fast that every single year you've got to get 20%, 26% new information so that you're not operating as a deficit because things are changing around you. And I think that we do such a great job of educating ourselves academically, but when it comes to spiritually, when it comes to our own character, when it comes to our own emotions, that many times we don't do a great job of working things out in our own lives. And we have to get the necessary assistance that we need to do that. Number four is this, I tell folks, precondition your mind. This is what a zero victim mindset is all about. It's about preconditioning your, your mind. You know that some, some tough times are coming. You know that some hard times are coming. Get ready for them. Don't be dismissive of it. Uh, temper your mind. You know, I use a quick analogy to say that a guy, um, the catcher in, the, in baseball, my favorite position in all of baseball is the catcher because you got this guy sitting behind home plate and get this, John, without the right protection, um, if somebody throws a hundred mile an hour fastball at you, you're dead. But That's but right. but but the catcher the catcher understands how to precondition his mind when he puts on the right protective right protect uh, protective equipment, and then he sticks out his hand in anticipation of this life threatening projectile that's coming his way. And so get this, John, what could be a, a life threatening situation? The catcher has learned to manage it, and not only does he manage it, it's now a sport for him. He's enjoying it. He's managing a situation. Why? Because he's preconditioning his mind and he's prepared for it. And the last thing I tell folks is to envision your victory, that you've got to, you got to, this crosses over into the area of faith. You've got to see your way out. That many times I think that when things are hard, when things are difficult, uh, we sometimes get stymied under all the pressure and all the things that are not right. And we lose the capacity to um, walk by faith and to really see a way out to envision the, the, the victory in our life. In my own life, when I come up against hardships, uh, the first thing I like to do, John, is I like to envision the outcome. I see myself winning. And then I start to kind of work my way backwards to where I am instead of being stuck under disparity where I am. Sometimes you can't see your way forward until you envision the end and then you start to work your way backwards instead of trying to work your way forward. And so those are just some practical things that I will offer anyone in that situation, in the family situation, a corporate situation. Maybe you lost your business. I know folks that have lost their business during COVID that are trying to recover. But you know what? We can't we can't stay down. We got it. We got to get back up and keep moving forward. And by God's grace, uh, praying that that 2020, 2021 is going to be an even better year for us. We got We got to keep believing and continue to live uh, to keep the, 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 the heart of faith and the life of faith alive during these times. Well, it certainly is within you. And so, my friend, we have seven questions that do guide us forward. And uh, they're just rapid fire. One sentence answers mm -hmm. it begins with question. Number okay. one. What sure. is the best, most influential book? you have ever read pastor james ward without doubt without a doubt the bible can, can you be more that's a big book man for us to just pick off the, the shelf yeah. or go to Barnes and noble and grab so is there a, a chapter sure. or is a book within the bible that you would lean into first sure i'd start with the gospel the life of jesus um inspires me he's he's the prototype of what god intended for for human living and also shows us 
um, not only God's prototype, but but the potential for our lives. That was the whole point of God sending his son. And I think you start if you start studying just the life of Jesus, um, it's, it's revolutionary, revolutionary. I would encourage everyone to start there. Even if they don't, if you say, I'm not a believer, I don't believe the Bible, I, I believe it'll help you live inspired. I believe it'll, it'll, it'll speak to anyone who's willing to, uh, to listen and to embrace it. What is one positive characteristic or one trait that you had as a little fellow growing up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, that you wish you had as brilliantly today? The, the hospitality of the South. I think growing up in Tuscaloosa, um, hospitality was a big deal. Relationships was a big deal. People took time for each other. Um, we're in this social media, digital media space, which is so impersonal. Um, growing up, I mean, you you walk through the neighborhood, you drive through the neighborhoods, and folks that you don't even know wave, hey, how how are y'all doing? You know, that way of life, um, you, you're making meals for each other. Um, that was just a level of hospitality, hospitality, hospitality and community that we experienced then that in this digital space, uh, things are just kind of more professional, more cold, more impersonal now. And so I could say that's maybe maybe something that I wish which we could uh, import into the, the 21st century here. James, if your home caught fire, your wife, your children, any animals you may have, they're all out. They're all safe. They're all on the sidewalk. And you have an opportunity to run back in safely and grab one item, anything. What's the one thing yeah. you come running back outside with? Oh, wow. Um, this may sound really sad, probably my, my computer. <laughs> and the reason, I, the reason I say that is not for, not for work reasons. Um, I tell folks all the time, I don't, I don't really care for social media, but I care about the people in social media. And so I think that just being being connected now, especially in a COVID world, um, I think we have to manage just being being in connection with people. And so I, I love, I deeply, deeply love the people in this digital space. I think it defines where we are right now. I don't think there's there's any going back. I think it's irreversible that we live in a digital world. And because I love people, those pipelines and those connections are increasingly becoming important to me for the right reasons and not for the wrong reasons. And so I think that um, good or bad, I just think these devices and these connections that keeps us in a position that we can, we can reach the people that we hope to reach and to, um, to be a blessing to them. If you could sit on a bench on a perfect day, maybe overlooking a mountain range or a beach or Dreamland Barbecue down in Tuscaloosa and have a yeah. long conversation with anybody, anybody at all, yeah. living or dead, who, who do you want to be seated right next to? Yeah, um, since you put it that way, sitting on a bench, I won't say Jesus because I have all eternity by God's grace to talk with him more intimately. And so if we're talking humans uh, in terms of historical figures, the person I would want to sit down and talk to with would probably be Booker T. Washington. Um, I'm a fan of Booker T. Washington, uh, Booker T. Washington's writing, uh, certainly his involvement with uh, Tuskegee University. And I read how in um, back as early in the, the early 1900s, um, Booker T. Washington was preaching what I call a zero victim message. Um, he was communicating even then during a time of slavery and injustice, unlike we've seen here today, um, he was communicating a shift in mindset. He was an advisor to presidents and even speaking to uh, Black people who were in slavery during that time. He was trying to convince them that 
Um, you have the intellectual property of how to build economy in the South with the crops and the sugar cane and the cotton and the things that you're doing. You have the know-how. You have the capability to be industrious. He was preaching that message then. Uh, he was trying to go into churches to preach that message, which I thought was a zero victim mindset. And believe it or not, he was he came under great persecution for preaching that message then. And uh, certainly that led to the great institution of Tuskegee University uh, being founded. I would love to have a sit down conversation with Booker T. Washington. In my history book in third grade, I read three paragraphs about him and you've just encouraged me yeah. to read an awful lot more about him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what's the yeah, best advice, whether it's he or anybody else has ever given you? So what's the best advice you've ever received? I guess there's different advice for different areas of my life. Something that really comes to mind, um, um, you know, a guy here in town by the name of uh, Rob Thompson has been a, mystic, a, a pastor and a mentor to me. I uh, used to work for him and he used to make this statement that that the people that you love can do no wrong and the people that you hate can do no right. And that that statement has always stuck with me in terms of making a decision to to love people and how how I see people determines the experience that I perceive in dealing with them. Is that that's a statement that's been branded in my life. The people that you love can do no wrong and the people that you hate can do no right. And so the way that I see people, you know, is just um, different now and I'm growing in it. I'm growing in my capacity to see people through the eyes of love, which gives gives me the opportunity to see the best in people and not see the worst in people. And I think, again, um, America has a lot to a lot to learn. It can take a lot away from that statement. And I, I hope my friends at MSNBC and my friends at Fox and my dear friends at CNN yeah. are writing that one down right now because it influences yeah. profoundly what you choose yeah. to see and then how you yeah. choose to share that with a community that is looking for the next step in their lives. If, if you That's choose yeah. somebody, <laughs> nothing they will do will ever yeah. reach that. And right. the right. yeah. calling, calling for all of us, whether you're Christians or not, is to choose to be love and to yeah. choose to be love in your neighbors and you will find it. You can't avoid it. That's so the, the yeah. second and final question is, what advice would you give your 20 year old self? I would, I would tell my 20 year, old, 20 year old self, don't compromise in relationships when it comes to uh, morality, when it comes to just truth, honesty, uh, being true to who you are, uh, being true to God's word, being true to keep your own word. I would just tell myself, don't, don't ever compromise. Don't compromise your identity and, um, and give in to the pressures of life to shape you into, into doing things that are, that are inconsistent with your, with your character. Pastor James Ward, author, husband, son, father, barbecue diner alongside of John O'Leary. That's right. Yes. <laughs> man who has taken on the mantle of zero victim thinking. It has been yeah. said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? That James Ward was a man of Christ-centered integrity who didn't compromise. And um, he lived a love life. Pastor James Ward, you are a man of Christ-centered integrity. Wow. You have indeed lived a love-centered and love-focused mm -hmm. life. And the cool thing wow. is wow. Thank you've you, done it not in the silence and the safety of a cave, but you've done it in the bright lights yeah. of life. So I want to thank you for taking time wow. out of your day to spend wow. part of your day with us and to encourage our community. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, John. It's really, really been an honor, man. I'm so grateful for it. Uh, for the opportunity to do so. And uh, anytime, man, let's let's do it again. Uh, I've enjoyed speaking with you. And um, you have a way of uh, 
really bringing bringing hope and bringing bringing inspiration to help people live inspired. So thanks for the great it's, it's easy and the very vital work that you're doing. When you're seated at a, at a large campfire next to James Ward, it ain't too hard to reflect <laughs> the delight, man. So thank you for yours. My All friends, right. that is Pastor James Ward. My name is John O'Leary. This is your day. Zero victim mentality. This is your day. Zero victim mentality. Choose to live inspired. word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies builds communities with the power of one. Six distinct brands come together as one single source for construction, infrastructure, technology, wireless logistics, and development solutions. Their true differentiator is building people within communities through their world-class culture. Check them out at Keeley Companies to learn more.